Amen. So we're going to jump in. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be, Acts chapter 4. Uh, I wanted to also share, and I forgot to do this, um, New Community Elkins, please be praying for them. They just found out that the community center where they meet is not able to reopen or host gatherings until next year, so the beginning of the year. So they are in, I mean, they're doing great online. Bobby's doing a tremendous job leading them online, but as you know, online is not the same as in person. Um, and so they are going to be going several more months without without meeting physically unless there's some other options that come up. Uh, so I would just encourage you be interceding for that. God may have something that we don't even know about yet. I would also encourage you shoot Bobby, shoot uh, Laura Osborne. She does their kids town. Shoot others that you know from there, a text, an email, a note. Just let them know we're praying for them. We're thinking of them because it's a hard space that they're they're entering into. All right. So Acts 4 is where we're going to be, and uh, as you're turning there, I want you to get this up because I really want you to see the story that we're going to talk about today. As you're turning there, I was thinking this week, uh, we, we had a conversation in our, our home again, and my, my kids get really tired of me threatening to treat them fairly. Parents, have you ever treated your, have you ever threatened to treat your kids fairly? Um, like, like Carrie, I will be yanked into the middle of an argument at some point, and it usually starts with, it used to be worse when they were younger, not as bad now, but it used to be, that's not fair, right? Everybody knows those arguments, parents. And, and usually when something's not fair, it means that that child is unhappy because a sibling received something that they didn't. So it, it, it usually means that they received something that the other one didn't, or a sibling didn't have to do something that they did, like go clean your room. That's not fair. Are you with me? I can't see facial expressions, so like more than a nod is good today, okay? That's better. Okay, so before you smile to big parents in this knowing conversation of what it means to be unfair, I want to just say to all of us, we do it too, right? Like most likely for us in our workplaces, we think things are not fair. Amen? Like this attitude, this sense that demands unfairness be eradicated is deep within us, like really deep within us. It starts when we're young, even before we have siblings, we can find ourselves crying out that it's not fair and it, it doesn't ever go away. Like think about it. Think, think about this. Think about the last time you got really angry at work. Some of you are like, it was this morning. Like I, I was working on Sunday and it, it was this morning. But, but think about whether you got angry at work or in your family, in your neighborhood. I would bet a lot of money that it was somewhat related to this issue of perceived injustice and fairness. Am I, am I right? Are you with me? Like marriage. I worked all day and he comes home and doesn't do anything. It's not what? Fair. It's not fair. Or, or you go to work and someone got away with slacking on a project and you put in the extra hours. Stop looking at your spouses. Look at me. Okay. This is not personal. We're going to just go through this together. Okay. You put in the extra hours at work. It's not fair or someone like this never happens parents right like someone else's kid got to play in the game the sport contest the competition and your kid didn't get as many seconds in the game as they did and that is just simply not fair so here's what happens when this happens parents with our kids they get really when with my kids they get really tired of my lecture because my lecture always starts with this single statement you guys could preach this message you don't want life to be fair that's where we start. That's the lecture. And when I first started this lecture, they would look at me like, yeah, we do. We just yelled about it, right? Like, we do want 
it to be fair. Didn't you hear us? But, but now they just roll their eyes because deep within them, they recognize the lecture that's coming. It's my soapbox, right? And they don't want fairness because if we really got fairness in our life, if we really got everything we wanted to be centered on being treated fairly, if that's what happened, we would be miserable human beings. If fairness was the rule of life, we would be miserable. Every kid would get the same portion of food all the time. Are you with me? And Keely, your senior boy needs a bigger portion of food, right? They would be limited. My kids would be limited to each get the same number of shoes, clothes, underwear, toothbrushes, everything. Fairness would be the great equalizer, and it would be miserable. And I'll tell you why it would be miserable, because here's the thing. Fairness eliminates the opportunity for generosity to express grace. Fairness gets, it eradicates the opportunity for generosity to show grace. There are days, there are evenings, usually after a sporting event when I'm with just one of my kids after a game and I decide, hey, let's go get ice cream and we go together and I have special time with them and it has never happened that they look at me and go, this is not fair for my sisters. They don't ever complain about that. Because I don't say that. I don't say on those evenings, you know, we really can't get ice cream tonight because your sisters aren't here and that's not fair. Like that would be poor fatherhood. It would save me money, but it would be poor fatherhood. I don't say that because the opportunity for generosity matters more. Generosity, you see, always expresses grace. I, I think, and, and this is what I want to talk about today, I think we've lived, we, we live in a world where we've lost this idea of generosity and replaced it with the idea of fairness. Like, especially when it comes to our own resources, when it comes to what we possess, what we claim as our own. You, you know, it's funny how often the scriptures talk about our resources. Specifically, the scriptures talk in great detail uh, about our money. And it's funny how little we as human beings talk about it. And I don't just mean as Christians in the church. I mean us as Americans, like Western European Americans. Like, we don't talk about it. We argue politically about it. Are you with me? Like, like we, what we think the economy should look like and how taxes should be lower, how things are unfair to certain pockets of the population and whatever. But we don't ever really talk about it in terms of our own life. Like, we rarely get real about our resources. I was kind of thinking about it this way. When I counsel couples getting ready to be married, and some of you I've had these conversations with, I, I'll tell them the top three things that end marriages, the top three things that shatter marriages are communication, sex, and money. Like, those are the things that come up again and again and again and, and, and just end relationships. And then I'll tell them those are also, by the way, the top three things that we hide the most in our current culture. Those things that end relationships, by the way, it's not just marriages, it's friendships, but those things that shut those things down, that shatter those relationships, are also the things that we don't talk about, honestly, in our culture. We, we don't talk about our real issues with our own communication and why we function out of the baggage of our past. We don't have authentic conversations about our sexuality, and, and we don't have honest conversations uh, about our money. To me, it's no wonder that the things that we tend to hide the most are the things that tend to destroy our most intimate relationships. That doesn't surprise me. I actually think we need a lot more honesty about all these issues, but, but especially in today what we're going to talk about, our resources. I, I think we need to get real about the state of our finances. Now, now, hang with me here, without the shame that often accompanies bad financial decisions. 
I think we need to get really honest about our finances and our resources without the load of shame that so many of us feel because we've messed up our finances. Like, I, I think we have a ton of people, especially in the church, who, who have jacked up our finances and don't ever hear sermons about how to handle our resources without a ton of guilt and shame about how bad we are at giving. So I'm going to preface the whole sermon today to say the offering's already taken, no pressure, and if you feel like I'm pressuring you for giving, then give somewhere else or don't give at all. I still think we need to talk about your resources. I still think it matters. And it's the same, by the way, with our sexuality. We have churches where we talk about sexual failure and all the shame that can come with that. And then we never broach the very hope of resurrection and renewal and how that impacts our intimate relationships. And you know what? That's not fair, and it's not the wholeness of the gospel. It's not what the gospel is about. So here's the deal today. We're in this series we've called Reset. We're going chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And today, just a heads up, I'm going to tell you where we're going. We're talking about a couple scenes in chapters 4 and 5 that have to do with generosity and stinginess, honesty and lying about resources and our finances. And there are some incredibly powerful moments in these scenes. And there's a really, really hard moment in this scripture that I don't like. And they have to do with our resources. And we're going to talk about our resources honestly. And at the end, I'm going to give you some really practical tips that I hope help you go, okay, these are steps I could take to really say, God, I want my resources to match your kingdom. And I will just throw this out there. There's no shame today. There's no guilt today. We've all done stupid stuff financially. Amen? Okay, that, see, I see that nod. Well done. Like, we've signed up for credit cards in college that have 600% interest rate just because there was a free T-shirt. Like, you, yeah, some, some of us have been there. We, we booked a terrible vacation after a ridiculous teleprompter call. We, we mail-ordered some essential item like a Floby because we were up too late and the infomercial was just incredible at 1 a.m., right? Like, we've been there. We've made terrible financial decisions. But if you stay in it and you keep it hidden, you're not being fair to yourself because we have to get real. And I'll tell you why we have to get real, because for grace to be real in your life, you have to get real about your life. You can't experience the authenticity of grace, the power of grace, the love of God that we just sang about until we get real uh, about the state of our life. So let's jump into this. Acts 4, verse 32, where Carrie read to us is where we're going to start. We're being given another description here in Acts 4 of the early church. This is a short little paragraph that the writer of Acts says, this is what was taking place in the church. This is what the church was all about. So right after their first opposition that we talked about last week when they healed this man and they're brought before the religious authorities and they're worried more about impact than influence, this is what we're told. Look at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed, now underline this, highlight this, write this down. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to hold up there before we read anything else because some of us, we would have trouble stomaching this verse if I told you this was how Jesus wanted our economics and our politics to be. Like if I said this was what the church was about, this is how Jesus wants to do resources and finances in our lives. It is so super countercultural. I do not want you to miss the political subversiveness of what this church was doing in this time. Like if you came some Sunday and I said, all right, here's what we think it means. Our leaders have met. We talked about partnership. We talked about membership. This is what we think it means to be part of new community, what it means to be biblically based. We're going to have everything in common. All your possessions. Open up your bank account. Like, log in. We're going to broadcast it on the screen. Are you with me? 
No. Like majority of you would walk out right then. You would, you would, you would be done. You'd go to the Baptist church. Like you'd go somewhere else that you, I'm not crazy about him, but I'm going there. Like that's where you would go. This guy's nuts. He's socialist. He's cult. But here we're told this was the way the church was functioning. One body in heart and mind, which sounds really spiritually nice, but also in resources. And no one thought it was unfair to share everything they had. It was all for the work of the kingdom. They had their houses, and they owned their houses, but their houses were always open. They had their funds, but their funds were always shared. They had their groceries, but you could come and get what you needed and give what you can. It was all in common. And what gets me here is the very next part of this description, this depiction of the church. Look at verse 33. It says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So listen to this. Let's break this down. Listen to this again. Here's where this starts. God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all. Like, like Luke says, I'm going to tell you how amazing this church was. Do you ever tell stories like that? Like, I'm, I'm fascinated by these ultra-endurance athletes. My wife will tell you that I probably bore her more than I should by reading books. I'm like, i got to tell you about this guy that, that climbed Mount Everest, and then he didn't think he did well, so he went down to base camp and stayed two more days and then did it again. It was just, or this guy that went and he ran for like a month straight, thousands of miles, all this, and, and I'm just obsessed with stuff like that. i got to tell you how amazing this guy is or this girl is, and then I'll tell the stories. So this is what the writer here is doing. He's saying, you're not going to believe how powerfully God's grace was working in this church. And then he's going to tell them exactly how powerfully it was working. God's grace was so powerfully working, here's how you know it. He says, no one was in need. You want to see the powerful church? You want to see the church that the world can't deny? Look at the needy people and watch their needs go away. That's the powerful church. There was no need, none. Everyone had enough. Bills were paid. Food was abundant. People had places to live. It was all covered. This is how the writer Luke sees God at work in the church. Need did not exist, which meant God was at work. I want to share the heart of this today, and it it is probably going to get me in some trouble, but I've been there before. I like that place. It's okay. All right. But it's critical as we consider this passage. I want you to see this because the heart of today is this, friends. When it comes to our mission and our effectiveness as followers of Jesus, when we look at the early church, I believe we need more kingdom economics rather than American economics. I think we got to shift some stuff. I, I'm losing some of you immediately. This, this, this preacher is getting too liberal, too conservative, too political, whatever it is. And most of you, here's the reality that I know when I preach this message, because this is what is in our church existence today. Not just new community, but nationwide. Most of us, this message isn't going to matter. Because our resources are too personal, they're too private, and we're not willing to get real about them. It's one more, and you're going to move on. You'll be polite, but you'll miss the point. But I stand by this. We need more kingdom economics in the church rather than American economics. See, here's the thing. Every earthly kingdom has its way of doing things. And we as the followers of Jesus have been invited into, embraced, and we've been made citizens of an alternative kingdom. 
Like all the kingdoms of the world will function in submission, in lower authority to the kingdom of God, which is what we've been invited to. This is why Jesus tells parables of lilies that don't labor or spin and wealthy farmers punished for saving up too much money. This is why he commands his people to lend without expecting return and to invest in heavenly things because he lives in a kingdom authority that dictates economics as well. There's an economics textbook, kind of economics 101. Here's a definition of economics as the textbook describes it. Listen to this because it describes the kingdom of America that we're part of, not just America, but the Western world. The definition, economics, concerned with the efficient use or management, listen to this, of limited productive resources. You know what that phrase means? That means there's scarcity. There's never enough that's limited, and we have to figure out how to get that because it goes on. Limited productive resources to achieve maximum satisfaction of human material wants. So let me break this down. We have limited resources. If we look at the kingdom that we live in in this country, in our world, we have limited resources. Resources are scarce. And we have to capitalize on those to maximize our own satisfaction and pleasure. And I want to say to you, friends, that's an economics textbook. And that's as far from the kingdom of God as we could ever get. Because we serve a God who doesn't run out of resources. We serve a God of generosity and abundance, not scarcity. And can I ask you, with all the economics brilliant minds that we have, how's it working for us as a country? We have 43,000 Americans who commit suicide every single year. We're the wealthiest nation on the planet, wealthier than we've ever been. How's our economics working for us? 43 million experience mental illness each year, addiction, even in spite of being this increasingly wealthy and increasingly despairing nation. See, Scripture's approach to economics looks foolish and it feels implausible, but it's exactly what we need. It's exactly what will bring us life because Jesus set up this alternative kingdom. I think if we were to take this definition of economics and we were to write a new textbook, the kingdom of God economics, they should teach that class somewhere. I'll teach that class. That'd be fun. I don't know economics at all. I would be a terrible teacher. But I do have the good definition. Economics is the study of humanity's consumption, production, and exchange of goods and services in order to steward King Jesus' creation. How can we bring life to this world with the resources that he's given us? See, for many, work isn't working. Unemployment rates among those with felony records are as high as 75%. 60% of employers wouldn't hire someone with a criminal record. 25% of working Americans earn less than $10 an hour. The, the exact same resume was 50%. Now, just don't miss this. Was, was 50% more likely to receive a callback from an employer if it had a white name, Brendan, rather than a black name, Jamal? We're broken. Billy Graham one time said this. He said, I came close to identifying the American way of life with the kingdom of God. Then I realized that God had called me to a higher kingdom than America. I've tried to be faithful to my calling as a minister of the gospel. We need kingdom economics. And today I want to show you from this story some of the principles, some of the economic principles of the kingdom. Some of you are so bored already. Economics, money, what are we talking about? Just hang with me. Here's the first thing I would say about kingdom economics. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God community has always held radical generosity as its hallmark. 
If you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like in the kingdom of God community, then look for the radically generous people. Go back. This is your homework this week. Deuteronomy 15. Go read it. Deuteronomy 15. God spells out for his people, this young, emerging nation of Israel. He says, what I want you to do when you get into the land that you're going to possess, the land that I'm giving you. By the way, everything you've ever been given, even if you think you earned it through hard work, you were given legs to get up and go to work. It is gift. That's where our economics needs to start. It is gift to us. Everything that we've been given is gift. God says, when I give you this land, every seven years, I want you to forgive every single debt. Can somebody say how powerful, amen, that would be. And you know what they called it? Jubilee. Everybody say Jubilee. See, some of you, I can tell how much debt you have because you're like, Jubilee. Like, that's awesome. Right? That's what God said to do. Every seven years, forgive the debts. Hit the reset button. Start over. Release things, God says, financially. And as you did so financially, here's what you find. When you start to release the, the, what you think you're owed, this unfairness, you will find that as you release them financially, well, you will also be releasing yourself emotionally and spiritually. And the same thing we see in Acts in this passage is what we see in Deuteronomy 15.4 where God says to his kingdom community, there will be no needy person among you. See, what they're doing in Acts here is they're embodying exactly what they thought God wanted them to do as the nation of Israel. When you trust God with the economics, there's more than enough. Luke is showing this body of Christ, this church, being the fulfillment of good news. Is it really good news if we never release the debts that we think we're owed? And they were countering the temple. See, the temple was the place where the healing, the restoration, the forgiveness of debts should have been happening, but it wasn't. And now the church was doing this. I, I think we should be known as Christians for radical generosity. That's, that's what the kingdom community, I, I read an article this week, there's, there's a, a group of churches in Chicago that have paid off $19 million of medical debts for people. The churches have banded together. And you know what we're doing? We're getting so mad because we don't think our political leaders are doing the right job. You know what? I, I think that maybe the political leaders are not ever going to do the job that the church is called to. I think maybe that's where the kingdom of God is called to step up. It should all happen. But it can only happen when we shift our beliefs and our posture uh, about generosity because the opposite of that, what most of us live with is that economics 101 definition that says there's limited resources. It's scarcity. It's all about I've got to get what I can because it's limited. And God says, no, it's a kingdom of abundance. Now look at the next part of this story in Acts 4 verse 36. We're told that Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. By the way, he becomes a major player later in Acts. That he sold a field he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. And so we see this image of this guy that is the son of encouragement making his gift to the church. I sold this property. I'm giving it to the church to meet the needs of people. Now, this is where the story takes this difficult turn because Barnabas is the parallel to the characters that we're going to meet next in chapter 5. I'm going to tell you straight up, I don't like this story, but I'm going to preach this story. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So Barnabas sells his, he gives the resources to the church. And now we meet Ananias and Sapphira who sell their property. Verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it 
that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. Now just pause there before we go on and imagine if that's how we did the offering in our church. Again, most of you would leave. You love me, but you don't like that, and you would be out of this church. We would receive our offering. I've seen this done, by the way. It was in the slums of Kenya. They took an offering. The offering plates came back up, and the pastors went, it's not enough. Send it out again. And they kept putting it out until they got what they needed. But if we did this, if we confronted, hey, the reality is some of you are not giving generously enough. Some of us are not giving generously enough because our attention is consumed. We're pretending like we're giving faithfully to God, but we're actually trying to lie to God by holding back. That would be so uncomfortable. But look how uncomfortable this gets in verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. That's a bad day at church. He fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. How many of you love these stories? I don't either. Right? Like, this is a bonkers story. I don't like this. It's, it's judgment. And, and by the way, many of your friends who are not followers of Jesus, they may say to you, well, I don't like the Bible because God's always, like, killing people and judging people. I would actually argue it's incredibly rare that God does that. But this is a story, we've got to deal with this. We don't like this story because it seems so harsh. But, but I want to say this this way, and I hope you hear this well. We can't have it both ways. If we love God healing lame men a chapter earlier, if we got, love God loving the prostitutes, the lepers, healing those who have been cast out, and reorienting what glory and holiness means, If we love Jesus standing up to broken systems and authorities, then we may also have to face the fact that if we're part of a community that has been called to take the place of the temple, we can't be surprised if God takes holiness and lying very seriously. We can't miss that. And this tells us the second thing about our resources. See, you got to hear this. In kingdom economics, your resources always reflect your heart. Your resources always reflect your heart. You can't lie to God about the condition of your heart. If you were to see our bank accounts, one thing you would see about me is I love to run. And what that means is that I love to buy running shoes. Amen, Dave Strawn? That shows my heart. I spend a lot of time. It also shows that we like to eat out way too much. But my resources reflect my heart. What would your resources show? What would your accounts show? And in this story, we see that there is, from God, there's, there's little compassion for those who lack commitment. And our stranglehold on money always hinders our walk with God. It always does. 
It is the same with our communication, with our sexuality. Those things, more than anything else, stand in the way with a chokehold on the fullness of God's grace that we are called to experience. I would say in this passage, this is not God being mean. This is grace being amazing. The reality is when I read this passage, I go, why has not God struck me down when I've made offerings that are dishonest? Why has God given me the grace to keep going? We don't want fairness, friends. We don't want that. And that goes right to the next thing, which is this lack of generosity. When generosity is lacking, it poisons the potential of the church to be the church. When generosity is not made real in the hearts of the body of Christ, then the potential for the church to be the church God has called us to be is poisoned. You know what generosity does? It creates a church with impact. You know what stinginess does? It creates a church that feels like it's constantly threatened. Can, can I just, can I call something out culturally right now, friends? If you're, if you're going crazy thinking we're being persecuted in our world right now, you have no idea what persecution is. You're missing it. We're not being persecuted. No one's ever come in and threatened to cut off your head because of your faith in Jesus. That's a, that's a scarcity mentality. That's a mentality that seeks power and authority based on the systems of the world versus generosity that says we will empty ourselves. The reality of where we are is that some of us right now in our culture are scared and staying home. And I get that. Some are are refusing to come to church or, or not coming to church because there's a fear or there's a thing that they go, well, this is wisdom. We need to practice this. And I'm all good with that. What I'm not okay with is using that as a crutch when the reality is we've just gotten flaky and out of the habit. Am I stepping on everybody's toes fairly and formally today? Or are we doing this? Because that's where we are. And the, 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 the toxic nature of stinginess and scarcity in our lives poisons what the church can be. It poisons who we can be as the church. We, we are called to meet the needs of the broken in our community. We're called to impact lives, to pay the bills, to show up in the broken places, to, to care for those who need it. And friends, this is not me bashing you. This is me saying, I read this story and it was convicting to me and I want to share it with you because I think God needs to say it. At the same time, I'm incredibly impressed with the generosity of our church. When we have specific needs, when we see things, you rise up and I'm so blown away by that. What I think we need to grow in as body of believers is our regular, faithful, disciplined giving. When we have projects, it's amazing. When we got to get backpacks for kids or food for the parish house, you guys show up in incredible ways. What I worry about is when giving isn't sexy, when we're shut down for five months and it feels like the church isn't doing anything and we need to keep giving faithfully. So how do we reset our finances? This is where I'm going to end. This is the practical stuff that I want to throw out to you today for you to think through. First, I think we got to stop lying. I mean, that's, that's the heart of this story about Ananias and Sapphira. They thought they could lie to God. I think we got to stop lying to ourselves and to God. I said this earlier. For grace to be real, you have to get real. For grace to be experienced as real, you have to get real about the condition of your life. When you say, I don't have enough, that may not be a true statement. 
You may need to reorient so that you do have enough. You may need to rethink what that looks like. When you say, I'm giving faithfully or, or, or I'm showing up faithfully, what is that real? Is that true? When you say, I've got enough for this lifestyle, but your level of debt does nothing but skyrocket, then you're lying to yourself because you really don't have enough for that lifestyle. That's the reality. When you say, and, and when I say, I need this. Have you ever said that to yourself? You ever heard that? But I need it. Really? Do you, do you need it? Do we really need Are we lying to ourselves? When we say, my kids need this, or do you just need their approval, or do you just need them to have the status that you think getting that is going to provide? we got to stop lying to ourselves. We've got to get real about that if we're going to reset our resources. Here's the second thing. This is really hard. I'm going to tell you the truth. You've got to get some help. You gotta get some accountability around you financially. You gotta get some people. You gotta open up enough. Listen, here's what happens with marriages. People come to me at a point and go, our marriage is in trouble and, and we need help. And we'll sit down and we'll talk about those issues, the communication, the sex, the money, whatever it is. And the reality is their marriage isn't in trouble. Their marriage is wrecked at that point. Their marriage was in trouble five years ago. And we didn't talk about it. We didn't deal with it then. And the reality is when it comes to our finances, our resources, if we're going to reset them, if we're going to live into the kingdom of God economics, we have to get some help. We've got to get some accountability around us, some people walking with us who have wisdom, who have mentoring, who have the ability to financially counsel us. And if you're brave enough to do that, listen, if you're brave enough to shoot me an email, to, to, to reach out to somebody that you trust and say, I don't know how to do this, but I need some help, we will get you set up with people to walk beside you. There will be no shame. There will be no guilt. There will be no disappointment. There will be people walking beside you saying, we want to help you get free of this. But you got to get honest. you got to be willing to get some help. Third part of this, practically speaking, get a fight for debt freedom. This is my theological statement. I wish I knew the Hebrew words, but the theological statement is stop buying crap you don't need. Stop buying the stuff you don't need. Stop us buying the stuff. That comes with accountability. If you can't give to the church yet, no worries. But save $50 a month, put it towards your, your unbelievable credit card debt and begin to fight for, give generously to get rid of debt. That's Dave Ramsey 101. You guys can go look up Dave Ramsey. He's way smarter than I am in this stuff. If you want to get free, go give to debt. Don't give to the church for years until your debt is paid off, right? God, God's got the church. I'm not worried about the church. None of this is about the give, giving to the church. God's going to take care of this. There have been months, days, weeks where we've gone, which bill do you want us to pay? We can't pay any of them. And God supplies. I am not a bit worried about our church. I'm worried about your freedom. I'm worried about our freedom. And then last, whatever it looks like, give faithfully, generously, and radically. Because when you taste that type of economics of the kingdom, when you demonstrate a faith and a trust that God can do more, listen, do not miss this statement, God can do more with you having less of your resources than you can do with you having all of them. I'm going to say that one more time because it's so critical. God can do more with you having less of your resources than you can do with you having all of them. When you demonstrate that, when you give faithfully, generously, radically, we have to live into that. I, I, am, I am at times discouraged, not by just our church, the church in our country, how little we give faithfully. But I'm amazed at how God keeps providing. And so, friends, I know we all hate 
hearing the sermons about money. Can I tell you the truth? I hate preaching them. I'm really excited about next week's sermon. But I'd also be lying to you if we deny, we're going chapter and verse by chapter and verse, if we miss the fact that God wants to set some of you free in this. And friends, there is no shame. There is no guilt. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, that grace matters, that grace is real. But for grace to be real, you got to get real. you got to get honest about this stuff. you got to take some steps towards your own freedom. And so that's what we're going to close with today. I'm going to have the band come. And the practical side is you got to get honest. you got to get some help. you got to start to fight for your own freedom. And you got to let God show up in amazing ways. And if we don't, we're going to stay right where we are. You have the option to stay right where you are and to move on to next week. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move on to next week's sermon. But if you make this a moment where you go, you know what? Grace isn't just some idea that gets me to heaven. Grace is an entire way of being in the world. Then God may just want to speak and call out, encourage you. Let's get you to freedom when it comes to your resources. Let's reset your finances. Let's do this thing in the way that God has called us to do. Let's, let's pray together.